This is part two on 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10. They will suffer, the they here referring back to those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel in the preceding verse. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And that's what we looked at last time. Punishment, destruction, ruin, not annihilation, eternal. And now Paul puts two specifics on it, this punishment. Namely, we are cut off or sent away from the presence of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So, Father, as we focus for a few minutes on what it would be like to be away from the presence of Jesus forever and away from the glory of his might forever, Would you open our eyes? Because there are many people who would read that and say, I don't care. They never interested me anyway, so why would I care if I were cut off from them? That's tragic, and it's true of many. And so, God, don't let it be true of us, because Paul means for this to be horrifying. And if it doesn't feel that way to us, we have defective love for Jesus, and we need such a work of the Holy Spirit. So come and do it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So specifically, this punishment is going to involve being away from the presence or the face of the Lord Jesus. Let's look at a few places where that prospect is pronounced. Matthew 7, Jesus said, On that day, that last day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me. What a horrible word to hear at the last day when we thought we had all this spiritual power and we didn't love him, we didn't know him. He was not our treasure. He wasn't precious to us. Here's the description of it by Jesus in Matthew 25. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus, on the other hand, prayed that the highest blessing his disciples could ever receive would come true. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This was the great climax to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Oh God, grant that 
John Piper would be with me. I pray that you're in that number of those whom the Father has given to the Son, that they would be with me where I am forever to see my glory. This is what we were made for. John spells it out more fully, what it involves in his first letter, chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. In other words, this seeing of him, this being with him, is so enthralling that it doesn't leave us as mere observers. We are drawn into the very glory. We are made like him. We are granted to taste the glory and reflect it. Here's the way Paul describes that experience in what? Three verses later from our text, we pray that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Fill that out. I pray that the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you would be glorified in him. That's the same thing that John was saying. When we see his glory as we ought and love it as we ought and are satisfied in it as we ought, we will share in the glory. We will be glorified as we glorify him. And it will all be of grace. Paul describes, he tries to help us understand why this is such a, a horrible prospect of being away from the presence of the Lord. And he does it by saying how being with him is everything. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. And if it is far better, than being on this earth, it is infinitely better than being in hell. But it is with Christ that makes heaven heaven, that makes the new heaven and the new earth worth being in. He amps it up in chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing worth. It is so valuable to see and know and be with Christ that everything good in this life, by comparison, is loss, Paul says. Everything, the best that you love, is compared to knowing the worth of Christ. 
loss. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ, see Christ, be with Christ. Which is the way, circling back now to 1 Thessalonians, the way Paul leaves it in his description of the second coming. Then we who are alive, who are left to be caught up together with them, the people who've just been raised from the dead, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That was the apex of Paul's hope. He couldn't say anything better about the future. It wasn't that our diseases would be taken away merely, that we would escape hell merely, that our sins would be forgiven merely, that we'd be at home in a new heaven and a new earth merely. All of that is preconditioned for this. We will be with the Lord. And then he adds, and we ask why. So this punishment is going to be away from all of that, away from the presence, the experience, the preciousness, the fellowship, the sight, the transformation, the pleasures at God's right hand in his presence. And it's going to be away from the glory of his might. Now, why do you suppose? He would go there. Why not glory of his wisdom, glory of his uh, love, glory of his grace? I mean, all those are true, right? If we were to be cut off from the glory of his grace or the glory of his wisdom, the glory of his justice, we would be undone. But he chooses might, power. Why? I don't know. But I'm going to tell you what I think, and then you see if you find contextual clues to answer the question for yourself. I think Paul, when he thinks of Jesus Christ coming with mighty angels, the angel, literally the angels of his power, in flaming fire giving vengeance globally. I I think he cannot help but think that at this moment, the whole world will reverberate with one thing, power. A hundred million angels representing his might. So that at the front of his mind when he thinks about Christ is power. He is so powerful as the creator and upholder of the universe. And then he pauses and he says, However, what makes this might desirable so that you wouldn't want to be cut off from it is that it is a glorious power, or let's use the word beautiful. I think that's what glory means here, more or less. It's a beautiful power. It's a power with all the personal traits that we came to love when we saw him in his earthly, moral, spiritual, precious, beautiful self. 
we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John said in chapter 1. So, I think the point here is, by definition, as God and coming at the second coming, might will be foregrounded in our emotions, and then that might is increased 10,000-fold by being a beautiful might, a, a glorious might, a might marked by all the personal, moral, spiritual traits that we love about Jesus in the gospel. Oh, brothers and sisters, the presence of the Lord, the infinitely mighty Lord, the infinitely beautiful mighty Lord is what we were made for, and all is ruin if we're sent away from it. And if that doesn't ring with you, oh, get on your face and plead with God to give you a love for the Savior that Paul assumes in this text.